Welcome to episode 151 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Chon Tang from Junzi Capital Engineering. Hi, Chon. How are you doing? Hi, Justin. I'm doing well. Thanks. So this is a little different kind of uh, show. We normally talk to entrepreneurs who are building one type of a startup or another, but um, Chon, you have a little different background, which is that you were doing startups, but you moved into algorithmic trading. And... Uh, I just want our listeners to understand that this will be a little different kind of show because we're going to talk a lot more about the, uh, I don't know, the world of algorithmic trading and uh, I guess particularly your story. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm excited uh, about doing that. Great. So this whole thing started um, is I, because I wrote a, I wrote a blog uh, article that got some traction about how I quit algorithmic trading to go into web startups and you actually left a comment saying that you actually were headed in the opposite direction. So uh, it, it just became an interesting way. You, I, I, I guess we exchanged an email or two and got this, uh, got this set up. So I'm really excited to have you on because I've talked a lot about, or I guess I haven't talked a lot about it, but I mentioned periodically my background in um, algorithmic trading, and it's, it, this is the first chance that we're actually going to be able to get into it. Plus, um, your background having actually been successful making money uh, in algorithmic trading. So that's going to be really interesting. Yeah, what's... Um What's kind of uh, intriguing is that um, non-algorithmic traders seem to take pleasure when they see uh, our approach, our our, our common approach, um, being taken being taken um, down a notch. You know, over the last 10, 10 years, a, a lot of computer traders, a lot of program traders have kind of come out of the woodwork and really changed the overall environment for trading as a whole. So when you posted your blog entry, uh, that was passed around um, on a few places, actually. And I, I saw it on a site called Elite Trader. Um, and, you know, the common consensus from a lot of people was kind of like, ha, see, it's, it's incredibly challenging. It doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, I do think it's very, very challenging. But um, I also do think it's um, a very promising field and probably um, I, I, I I know it sounds very cliche, but I would definitely say it's the wave of the future. Yeah, well, me too. Um, so why don't we do this sort of in story form? Um, because I think the, your um, path um, will, be, will, be, will be interesting to hear about. Um, and, but we'll kind of blow through the early stuff, on, I guess, kind of quickly, because I, I do want to get to the trading um, sooner. So your background is you, your, your education. You got an undergraduate degree in uh, electrical engineering and computer computer science from uh, Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley, and then you went on and got a master's in uh, electrical engineering from yeah, and then you went and got a master's from yeah. uh, MIT, correct? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. And I think it's nice to kind of to put this in in, in context. Um, I graduated from Berkeley in '98, and then I graduated from MIT in 2000. So this was really the very heat of the dot-com bubble. Um, there, was, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of talk or interest in what was going on on Wall Street. Um, my two years in uh, Cambridge uh, was almost entirely devoted towards uh, the concept of launching the next great dot-com. Um, we hung out with, with uh, NBAs from 
Harvard, and we would just hang around, drink beers, and and planned uh, if and when we were we were going to go back to California, raise millions of dollars, and become filthy rich. Um, right. Yeah. And so it, it's actually <laughs> funny because because I was uh, going back through some of my old emails um, the other day, and just to put some again some background on how truly nuts it was back then. Um, I remember going to a job fair at, at MIT where uh, as a prize, one person, all you had to do was actually come in and attend that job fair. One person would win a car, a, a completely brand new car. Wow. Wow. Yeah. The yeah, that was, a, that was a crazy time. I remember I was so stressed out because it was moving so fast and I had these ideas and I just couldn't I couldn't get myself to focus because it just seemed like there was so much opportunity that was just passing by every day. Um, yeah, and, and there wasn't a whole lot of, of, uh, of uh, discussion or thought about sort of that long-term traction. It was purely, what can I do over the next 6 to 12 months that would attract investor interest? You know, all I needed was a pitch, uh, a concept, um, and just on that basis alone, I mean, God, God knows uh, there was actually no expectation that you might actually write code and launch a product. It was just purely if you could <laughs> lay out a framework for what might work, for what might bring users to your site, to your portal, then, then that was plenty good. Right. So, well, so what did you do? I mean, you, after you graduated, what was your first step in that direction? Well, my first, um, my first job interview post, uh, post-grad school was actually with uh, D. Shaw. Uh, D. Shaw is a very well-known quant hedge fund, um, and and it's kind of interesting because they really pioneered the path that we're talking about now. Um, back in the '80s, uh, David Shaw, who was a professor, and he might be now as well. I'm not clear. Um, he was a professor of computer science at Columbia, um, right. and uh, based on his connections in the in the financial fields, he. He thought that there was an edge in being able to computerize some of the trading approaches out there. So he launched Dishaw. It did wonderfully. Um, and uh, by the time I graduated, it had, it had this aura of being filled with uh, brilliant um, PhDs in applied math in computer science. And they were known to be raking in uh, lots and lots of money. But considering how overheated the dot-com world was, despite the fact that I interviewed at Disha, despite the fact they actually gave me a job offer, I had no interest. So I guess you could say <laughs> I've actually gone from quant trading to the dot-com world, and now I'm kind of going back into that quant trading yeah, path again. Didn't, um, didn't uh, David Shaw launch Prodigy out of, at the same time? Uh, I mean, that was, that was sort know. of like some launched, little side investment or something? Yeah, he launched... Um, at some point, Disha went into the VC path as well because everyone was doing it. Okay. He launched um, an email client called, called Juno, J-U-N-O. Yeah, oh, right, Juno, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I guess Jeff Bezos used to work there at Disha, right? He did. He did. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, I, I think he, he would have left there probably 96 through 98 or so. Um, yeah, I think there's a story about how um, he went on a long walk with – uh, David Shaw and trying to convince him or explaining why he was leaving to go to do this startup to create this bookstore online. And I think David Shaw was a little skeptical and, and just and opted not to invest, if I remember correctly. Do you know the story at all? I, I, I don't. That's the first time that I've heard that, that he had a chance to invest and in, in passed. Um, but that would explain why, you know, in 2000, he was kind of trying to catch up 
uh, to the larger <laughs> bubble that had moved on. You know, that was actually a big part of the pitch that they gave us as well. You know, it was uh, come here for the quant finance, but we'll also maybe allow you to do a dot com too. Ah, um, uh, I see. Right, right. Well, that makes sense, right? <laughs> All good things will happen here. Just you know, come hang out with us. It, I mean, it's just it's so funny because um, two or three years after that point, after the dot com bubble had deflated, and after we were hearing it in the press about how these these now common terms, you know, hedge fund prior to two thousand, I think was not a well-known concept. It was really over the last five to eight years that it's taken off and really you know, captured the imagination of a lot of people. Three, four years later, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, why did I pass up on the opportunity to go to the <laughs> shop? I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, it's so easy to miss that stuff. I mean, right, you think about David Shaw, how much he was kicking himself for not investing right. even a little bit into Amazon. I mean, you know, it's so yeah. hard to, hard to yeah, say. Absolutely. So. When you passed it up and you, and you decided to go down the uh, dot-com route, what did you do? What, did you start something with some friends or did you go work for another company or what? Yeah, uh, you know, we, we had, um, again, being in that environment at Cambridge, as well as um, a lot of my contacts from, from, from Berkeley, we, we, we felt like, uh, or I should say I, I can't talk to it from more than one person, but I definitely felt like I had my pick. I, 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 I wasn't interested in Google because at, at that point in time, it sounded to me like Google was just another search engine, you know, and, and God knows there's so many of those. There's no value add left in the right. search. I'm going to ignore that in, entirely. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but uh, yeah, I, I ultimately grouped up with a few people from Harvard um, who are also graduating the same year. And um, so our credentials were great. And if it had been 1999, I feel confident we could have done something great. Instead, we came out here. And we found out that, gosh, it's no longer enough to have a fantasy. It's, you actually had to have a, a product that functioned correctly. You had to actually have uh, some ability to attract and keep people who came to your site. Um, we, we, we pitched our idea for about a half year, talked to a lot of dot-coms. Um, our expectation was that we would go in, charm them. They would say, sure, I'll write you a check with more paper money that's not real because it's just in the form of options anyways and then we'll acquire you and then we'll be you know, our portal will be will be the best and the greatest in in the world and that's it so did it end up that algorithmic trading was the easy option uh well back in i mean for for, for about five years there i would say from 2000 and 2005 the dot-com pipeline was just completely closed off um there was no angel investing vc in Investing had really dwindled as most firms were focused on keeping alive uh, the companies that they had in the pipeline. Um, well, yeah, you know, it was it was like it was post nine eleven. We're going yep. to the Iraq War. All the VC firms had lost a ton of money in the dot com, and, and and the big ones like Kleiner were starting to talk about uh, green tech. Like green tech was something that was real. That all this internet stuff was just kind of fake and fool's gold. So they're going to invest in these real big ideas, big infrastructure things like solar and, and, and things like that. Yeah, and, and you know, and the thing is, VC uh, firms aren't the be-all and the end-all. They're, 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 they're just one channel in the pipeline, right? You have to go through the VC round, you have to go through the A round, then get to the larger B round, and eventually get to an even larger C round, and maybe at some point go public. But the assumption in there is that there's additional capital able to come in at each point to continue the growth of the business. Um, you know, these dot-coms or all VC firms in general don't do well when you want them to 
to keep their burn rate flat. They're, they're built to either go up quickly or blow up, right? Right. Um, right. So when, when, the, when the public capital markets closed up, when IPOs were no longer an option, when C rounds um, from larger partners was no longer an option, VC firms were just desperately trying to route their capital towards their portfolio companies, keep them going a little bit longer um, and hoping that we would get back into the boom age again. And I think that we're back in the boom age, actually. Right, right. So, um, I mean, what kind of success did you have in that area? You said you, it sounds like you spent about five years or so. Yeah, so, uh, so my dot-com failed. My dreams were dashed. Um, I, I uh, went in and uh, found a job at a very low-tech uh, industrial computing company. And I want to say low-tech not in a uh, derogatory way, but, but just in the sense that we were building practical products that people installed in stuff and actually used. Um, right. uh, and uh, it actually turned out to be a great place for me. Um, the company grew well. Um, I did well. Uh, and then about five years ago, maybe 2005, 2006 point, um, I actually uh, kind of got that bug again where, where I wanted to hear business plans, where I wanted to be involved in dreaming big. Um, I went to a uh, entrepreneurial event at the local B school um, and saw some angels and uh, they were on a panel, they gave a talk, and I just found it so exciting. You know, that, that, that process of analyzing, of analyzing and considering business plans, I really enjoy that. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's fun, you know, it's just the creating something out of nothing. So did you get into investing, or did you get into actually trying to start something new, or, or um, which? So, which yeah, at that point... Um, uh, I, I, uh, I, I've done a bit of both, but primarily um, I, I joined a number of angel groups here in California. Um, okay. uh, I actually served on the board for the, uh, for the group here um, up north in Sacramento. I was on the board for um, about a half year to a year or so, and, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun. Um, we would meet up once a month, see uh, two or three companies, um, uh, dig deep in in the in the uh, due deal process and in, in the ideas that we really uh, that we really got excited about. We would invest and um, and hope to see it grow. At, at that point, what sort of credentials did you bring to the table to say that you could be on the board of, of something like that? Oh well, uh, I, I mean, to be perfectly honest, most angel groups are a social gathering. A lot of people are are there. Uh, because they do have some experience in business and because they do have capital that they want to invest, but also because they just want to be around a community of people with, with, with comparable interests. Um, I, considering the fact that I had uh, gone through that path, even though I had failed, um, it, it, it did give me some insights into what would work, um, what would not work. Um, and uh, uh, it was just purely, I was, extremely involved. Um, I think I was probably one of um, the larger investors uh, for the two years that I was really active in doing this. Well, it's funny because failing, I mean, I've, since I've moved over from the UK, I found that failing is a, is a pretty massive badge of honor in the US compared to the, U, to the UK. So. <laughs> well, I would say it's failing. It's just like, at least you're trying. 
right? Yeah. I mean, it's just You've like, learned look, the lessons, I mean, right? Yeah, well, like, I mean, yeah, you, you probably learn more from success than failure, but at least you're out there trying because most people aren't even trying. They don't know anything. They just read about it. So, yeah, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't. The, you know. Yeah, uh, I think the key is just experience. Uh, you know, yeah. that, that, that process of thinking about value proposition, uh, you know, thinking about where inefficiencies exist in the, in the economy as a whole. Um, I think that's something that you, you kind of have to train your brain into process, into properly thinking about. Um, and, uh, and in fact, I would argue that's what has led me into my current path. It's probably because, you know, I'm not here doing this because, um, purely because uh, it seems to work and it looks nice and it's cool to talk about at cocktail parties. It's, it's because I really thought about the capital markets and found something where I felt there was an inefficiency that technology could eliminate. Okay, so I got one last question and then I'd, I'd like to start jumping into the, uh, the trading part of the show. So the, the one thing was I find curious is so how you were working at, at a job, so how did you have enough capital to angel invest? I think that's a very fair question. Um, uh, as a very early employee um, at this company, I was uh, to to attract me, to bring me back in. Um, they had to uh, promise me a cut of of profits going forward, and it wasn't a large company. We're, we're talking six to eight employees, right? Um, and, oh, okay. And, oh, wow. So yeah, and if you think about it, if you think about it, uh, for most of the last 200 years, what has been the source of wealth creation? It's, it's not from building a company that's acquired. It's, it's from building products that people buy. Sure. Um, and and uh, it turned out that, that we built products that people, that companies wanted to buy. And even though it's not companies that you and I were the common man would, would come in contact with, um, with on a daily basis, but you know they were a big part of the economy. So, how, wait, how how big was it when you joined, and how big was it when you left? Oh, actually, uh, it hasn't really increased in size. Um, it, it was, I think, five before I joined, and and uh, it grew to maybe eight people, nine people at its peak. But in okay. terms of gross revenues, um, it probably increased by a factor of ten. Wow. So yeah, okay. So there's some good revenue coming in. And yeah. so that served as a nice sort of platform for you because you were able to use that money to angel invest. And then I, I guess for um, moving into trading, you had some trading capital. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's, okay. that's exactly right. Okay. So let's, to my, my next big question, the big transition is, so what made you start thinking about trading and automated trading? You're sitting there, you're working for this company, you're doing yeah. well, you're, you're angel investing, you know, what gives you this sort of wild hair? Like, hey, you know what? Yeah. I think I can beat the market. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I get that. I get asked that all the time. Um, because a lot of people uh, at that point would be, would be concentrating on playing golf. Um, right. I, I, my answer is uh, kids. Um, I, I had my first child uh, in 2008. And uh, as soon as I had her, angel investing was off the table. Because angel investing to really be effective at it, it's still pretty time intensive. Um, okay. It's not an eight to five kind of job. You have to be available to take calls at all times of the night. You have to be able to travel and be with key customers, me with uh, key team members. Um, Were you thinking you'd move from the, the high risk uh, angel investing to the very low risk trading? <laughs> I think both are actually... Uh, actually kind of co- comparable in terms of risk. Uh, I mean, you know, 
angel investing, what's interesting is if you, if you take a look at the numbers involved, um, you really need to diversify broadly. I think that's, that's a given, right? Um, uh, the parameters that I've been told is if you invest in 10 companies, expect or hope that two of the 10 will do extremely well. You know, they'll become the kind of companies that we hear about in the press, uh, occasionally at least. Two might sort of drift along and eventually get acquired for what you in, for the market cap that you invested at. Six of the 10 will eventually just die off, right? right? And then assuming you can achieve those parameters, then over time you'll end up with a maybe 20% annualized return. Right. Okay. Right. So when I, when I got back into, uh, into quant trading, uh, kind of the question was, can I beat that number? Can I beat the 20% number? Can I do it with lower risk? Uh, uh, because, you know, to even get that two of 10, you really needed to invest in 100, really, you know, right? Invest in right. 100 deals and hope that, that, that 20% of them will, will, it will eventually uh, be acquired at a huge premium and that you will do well. And I didn't have the capital or the time to invest in 100 deals. I know there are these angels that can do that, but I think that's a very tiny percentage of the population. Most of us invest in, you know, two or three, two or three deals a year. I, I had invested in, in, I think, 10 or 15 over, over two or three years. And I felt exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So to get to the, so the, the, to to your move into trading, I mean, what was the, what was the thought process or, or, you know, you said, all right, I need to beat this 20% number. So what, what did you do? So 2008 financial crisis, uh, the world is ending. Companies are going bankrupt left and right. Um, I saw my buy and hold because just like any good investor, I was told that you buy uh, the companies that you like and you hold for 10 or 20 years and it will do well. Well, I saw my buy and hold portfolio get crushed. Yeah. Um, and that made me wonder if I could do better. I mean, it, in a sense, it lowered the emotional barrier to entry. It was like, well, I can't do worse than, than being down, whatever, you know, two thirds of my portfolio in a year, can I? So let's go back and take a look at this. And the, and the crisis exposed... I think a lot of opportunities. It it, uh, it made me question um, why certain instruments were being priced the way that they were priced. Right. Um, and so, and so uh, okay. So you see, so it looks like you see some opportunity there. Yeah. Now, did you just say, okay, I'm going to open up a brokerage account somewhere, or did you just start getting some historical data and running some statistical tests? I mean, what was your first step? <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it kind of. Um, it, it grew just as part of my normal trading. Okay, I, I, I had a particular concept in mind again uh, on the basis of that that question. You know, why are these instruments priced at these levels? It's either too expensive or too too cheap, one or the other. Why is that? So, in in the beginning, I was trying to actually trade by hand uh, and think about a few of those concepts. Um, and then I found that the brokerage, I was actually on Fidelity at the time, they actually had um, a programming uh, toolkit called uh, Wealth Lab Pro. I think. Right. Um, yeah, in fact, we, uh, we interviewed um, a while back James Altucher, and he was, I guess, an investor in Wealth Lab and an advisor. And oh, okay. He, his, his book, um, Trade Like a Hedge Fund, all the, everything's in Wealth Lab. Like he, you know, yeah. So we talked about that a little bit. Yeah, okay. Oh, so you used Wealth Lab to, for your first experimentations? 
Yeah, yeah, and and uh, not to insult your previous guest, um, as a platform, it's very constrained. Uh, but I wasn't aware of that at the time. It was just kind of like, oh, look at that, this is cool. Now um, the trades that I wanted to be putting on by hand, I could actually automate and trade this way. Um, I played with that for a little bit of time and uh, didn't do any backtesting at this point, by the way, because uh, I don't think Wealth Lab Pro has a very effective backtesting platform at all. It, it was just, it was just purely let's play with this. It was a game at at sure. this point in time. Well, can um, you see what you were? Can you tell us what you were trading? Uh, what instruments? Yeah, I was trading equities and options. So, okay. uh, y- y- you know that big discrepancy in pricing that I saw in 2008 was that options were being priced at a very high premium, but at the same time, the underlying, the actual instrument that the option is for was moving so much that it's not clear, right? All the mathematical models that's used to describe how an option should be priced in textbook form. I mean, did that apply anymore? No one knew, right? Right. So, so, So that was the core concept the value proposition that I was trying to attack. Um, and then I came upon, of course, NinjaTrader. Um, we talked about this briefly a couple of days ago. Um, for those that don't know, NinjaTrader is a uh, backtesting execution platform. Um, it runs in .NET. They have a built-in IDE, or at least a, 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 a com- compilation tool um, for C-sharp. They have a lot of code. And C sharp, um, and I began to play with that. And the backtesting uh, platform was a little more, less constrained than Wealth Lab, so you felt like you could uh, do more realistic simulations or something. I, I honestly don't think I even really got into backtesting on Wealth Lab Pro beyond maybe taking a cursory look and saying either the features didn't exist or they were just so so weak that it didn't give me um, um, the comprehensive uh, behavior I wanted. Sure. Um, okay. You know, NinjaTrader, uh, all it does is it acts as a layer on top of the broker interface, on top of the data interface. Um, it's event-based, so you get calls uh, every minute, every five minutes, every 10 minutes, any parameter that you want that says, here is the most recent data that we got from the data feed. Um, it gives you execution calls like... Uh, you know, go long, go stop, go limit, right? All, uh, that type of very right. basic capability. And so you started doing, now did you, once you got to that level, did you start getting heavily into backtesting and, and, and trying to prove to some, with some statistical measure that your, your strategies held water? Definitely, definitely. Um, uh, I, I, I first tried to at least code up that core framework, the core trading behavior. But uh, immediately, you know, the question that comes to mind is, if I'm doing this, I'm actually going to be making money in, in the long run. And I should, I should you know, point out that at this point in time, I had no interest in fundraising. I, I'm, I'm not, um, I wasn't a finance guy casting about for someone to raise money from investors at all. I, I, that was not on my mind. It was just purely... Um, how can I make more effective use of my own investment capital? Right. Um, and, and so I, I uh, and what's kind of neat about NinjaTrader is that historical data or live data looks the same. So the code that I wrote for 
live trading, it was very easy to start playing with and saying, okay, well, let's test more. Let's go back and see what would happen back then and what happens if I tweak these parameters and if I, tra- and if I tweak those parameters. Um, um, Did you see any success in the earlier platform, the, the Wealth Labs platform, that made you decide, okay, I need to look into this further? Or was Wealth Labs failing, so you decided, okay, I need to look into this further? You know, it's a, uh, it, was a, it was a bit of both. I mean, I definitely had that intellectual curiosity just based on what was being done with Wealth Lab Pro that I wanted to learn more. Um, but it was so, so clear that I, I couldn't get the behavior that I wanted from it that it made me um, go off. So did you, how much capital of yours were you trading when you first started out? Uh, in, initially, I, I mean, on Wealth Lab, I was probably doing no more than maybe maybe thirty thousand dollars, fifty thousand right. um, dollars. You know, which, at that which point, for our listeners to know, if you're going to trade more than I think four or five times a week in equities, you have to have a minimum account balance of twenty five thousand, which Correct. is which qualifies you uh, for something that's known as a pattern day trader. That's the SEC. Um, is that per week or per day? Or, four, or I think it's four or five trades in a week's time. Then you're, then you, that's your limit. Other, the, other than if you do more than that, you're going to get, your broker's going to hold you back and, and put a flag on your account and stop you from trading unless you have at least 25,000, in which case they go, okay, you're a pattern day trader now, go do it. But so when, when Sean says he was doing, say, $50,000, he means per week. No, he's saying it's, he, that's how much he had in his trading account. So if you want right. to trade, oh, you have okay, to move some capital to trading account, right? So you would say, all right, let's transfer $50,000 from my Wells Fargo bank account into my Fidelity or whatever, you know, E-Trade or whatever brokerage account you have. And then, and then based on how much capital you have, that determines what you can buy and sell, and of course, how often you can buy and sell. Exactly right, and and in this case, uh, that capital was there because I had already uh, abandoned all of my buy and hold. Right, I mean, I right. sold out. Of <laughs> you rescued every- it from the from the slide into the oh, abyss. Well, you know, I, uh, the lows. Um, for those who don't follow the markets that closely, they 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 might. They might be thinking back and thinking that the lows of the market were in October 2008, and they weren't. Uh, the lows weren't until March of 2009, and and in March of 2009, I, for one, honestly thought the world was about to end. <laughs> you know, I was I was I was emailing all my friends saying, you know, I, I'm not sure if you guys are paying attention, but you know, move your cash around because you know that bank might be going under, right? And and that's and, but like uh, what countrywide where people were standing in lines. Outside of countrywide, trying to get their money back, and a lot of people couldn't. People had more than two hundred fifty thousand that wasn't FDIC insured, lost all of it, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, by March two thousand and nine, it had gone to the point where it wasn't clear that there was a bank that was safe, right? <laughs> it was right. kind of like time to go to Costco and buy lots of canned foods, kind of times. Honestly, honestly, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. So at that point, I had no interest in sort of doing normal investing, and it, it gave me a lot of of time to play with, with this stuff. Okay. So when you're doing this, mm-hmm. um, are, what, what are you, how are you learning? I mean, did you, did you, were there any particular books that you read that really gave you, um, sort of a path or some guideposts about how to think about trading actively? Um, no, in fact, <laughs> and I think, I actually think of that as kind of an advantage. Um, uh, I think a lot of, concepts are just passed around um, uh, on the street. And, and that leads to a very bad thing where all funds tend to be correlated. Um, I've seen 
some papers uh, being published uh, over the last year that show since 2008 uh, fund performance, even for the hedge funds that are meant to be, uh, you know, market neutral, quote unquote, um, in the sense that they should be able to profit both in a down market and an up market. Everybody is correlated. If the market right. is doing well, everybody does well. If the market goes crazy, everybody is going to lose money. Um, and and I, I think a big function of that is that everyone has the same background. They have the same view of the markets. They they began as an analyst in a different fund, and now they went off and formed their own fund. Everybody feeds off of that same poisoned root, right? Um, yeah. So uh, now I do. I should point out that I, I mean I've got a background um, in finance as well. You know, even at MIT, I was uh, I was uh, doing courses in financial engineering, and and I would encourage people out there that are thinking about this. Um, don't be in a hurry to go off and find a chart and try to pick and try to describe some convoluted function for guessing when prices are going up or down. Um, that's not the first step. The first step is really, you know, go learn about the capital markets. Go learn about um, why they exist, why they function, how companies are priced. Go learn about corporate accounting. Right? I mean, what's what's going on each quarter when when these when these uh, companies are publishing their 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 quarterly reports and their annual reports, there's uh, that foundation. That's important. You know, it is very important that you understand how the capital markets work. Once you have that, don't pay too much attention about how other people are making their money because, uh, well, if they're doing it, that probably means the opportunity isn't there for you. Um, and 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 if you if you go at it from a different angle, a different perspective. That's where um, the low-hanging fruit's going to be. Right. So when you started trading, when you actually – well, okay, wind it back. I just need to ask you this but one more time. So yeah. I just find it sort of surprising. So you have a master's in physics from IT. You're a smart, educated guy. You're learning this stuff. I'm surprised you wouldn't go to Amazon and just order like 10 books on, <laughs> on quantitative you know trading, algorithmic trading, and then just like blow through them. I mean, yeah. I would just, well – your your curiosity and brain power would just that would lead you to just blow through that stuff. Well, you know, I, I think I think my my feeling was that the real good stuff wouldn't be public. The real okay. good, um, and the stuff that was public was probably not real good. And, and three years on, I mean, you know, in the last three years, I have read quite a bit, and I would continue to agree with that. Um, <laughs> you know, there is a book that I read called um, "Inside the Black Box." Yep, um, and. Uh, I think that's a good overview. That's not going to tell you how to trade. That's not going to tell you how to make money. But it is kind of a good way to understand how to approach the problem, right? It kind of talks about how you do backtesting, in-sample backtesting, out-of-sample backtesting, you know, what are possible inputs you want to look at. I, I think that's fine. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with going through that kind of a book and trying to absorb um, the, the possibilities. But I, I, I just, you know, I just... Don't think there's a whole lot of value in the, uh, you know, quote unquote, how to make a million dollars a day kind of books or funds because, or, you know, I see these pop up ads too. And, and, and it's not real. It's not. The, the- yeah, no, that stuff, I agree. So that, 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 that sort of genre book, I mean, that's obviously garbage, but I just mean like what I was more curious about is how you learned your testing and optimization methodology. So, like, 
for instance, if, you're, if you have some idea for a strategy and you're coding it up, right, and, and we're talking about systems or algorithmic trading, right, which is what you did or what you've been doing, then you, and you go, okay, well, I have this idea, I have this set of rules or conditions or however you want to describe them or equations, and it's going to determine when I'm going to buy and when I'm going to sell. Mm-hmm. And then you say, okay, I'm going to test it on uh, you know, some period of historical data. I'm going to test right. it on the last year or two years of data. Well, uh, the first thing that a lot of people do is they just backtest everything up into like today. And mm-hmm. they just try like 100 different things, and they finally find a couple of things that make a lot of money. Like, oh, well, this is clearly going to work. Right. But then right. the first thing you discover is like, holy crap, I curve fit. I right. memorize that data. It doesn't generalize beyond that. And then, yeah. then you learn, oh, okay, there has to be this withheld data. Sometimes I call it out of sample. Sometimes I call it walk forward testing. Right. Well, you know, how, I want to hear your, your, your learning process of that because if you didn't read yeah. anything, I would assume that you probably made a few mistakes because there's, there's even more to it than that, right? No, I, I think, I think uh, so inside the black box does talk about a couple of those types of considerations. So uh, in that sense, yes, you're, you're, you are completely correct that you want to be uh, aware and cognizant of the dangers of curve fitting. I, I, I think, um, I think for, for, from my point of view, it was actually, um, it, it, I, I really discovered it, um, at least most of it, uh, on my own. Eh? Because as I was backtesting, um, it was pretty obvious uh, that if I change to a different instrument or if I change to a different time frame, then all of a sudden this thing that seemed to be doing great will blow up. Um, and, and maybe it's because it's a function of how I, you know, I could have been very fortunate because of how crazy the markets were, right? It, 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 it would have all the way, you know, as I'm going forward from um, October of 08 through March, April, May of 09, the markets were changing every single month, every single week, every single day. So, Anything that worked through January of 09 wouldn't have worked by February of 09, wouldn't have worked by March of 09. So, so uh, in, in that sense, um, uh, the, the, the dangers of, of, uh, of curve fitting, essentially, you know, it, if you think about it. It was, it, it was too obvious. It was too it, obvious. It, it, was, it, it, was, it would just bite me so hard that it was like, okay, this is not, not working. Um, and again, I mean, having some background, I think, in, in – uh, Financial engineering probably did help a little bit there, um, but but you know, I, I still I'm not convinced that that it's as hard um, as uh, some people might lay it out to be. And I don't mean to say that it's very easy, but I just I think uh, here I'll put it this way: um, I think the real key to doing well, be it in angel investing or in this world, or doing a dot com or anything. You have to find something that no one else is doing. You have to have a well-defined uh, edge, um, what your program is doing that enables you to do effectively that no one else is doing. Um, and uh, and uh, as long as you have that as a precursor to backtesting, I think that you're okay. I think the danger for backtesting is when you walk in with no concept of what you're doing except you want to make money and you find a chart and you feed a thousand different, you know, a thousand different permutations of when you buy and when to sell. And then, you, and then you find one that happens to work effectively. That's when you're going to get in trouble. Is it possible to put humanistic data into algorithmic trading? So such as when Steve Jobs presented because of Tim Cook and that's going to make a difference or Steve Jobs died or it's Christmas time or those kind of things. Yeah, you know, that's actually, um, it's interesting that you bring that up. That's actually a big part of the reason I wanted to leave um, 
uh, wealth lab um, because there was no real effective way to to put in input to really communicate to your program with NinaTrader, you know, all it's doing is it's a .NET container, right? And my program is executing it. So all the normal .NET stuff that you want to do is available to it. So in my case, I, I actually have a little, little, little command console that I, I can use to talk to my program and say, uh, ignore historical data from more than an hour ago because some market moving event just occurred, right? right. I mean, do, do you literally do things like Go and you, like have a little script that goes and looks at the Apple blog for keywords, and if such as certain keywords happen on you know as an, as a new Apple blog post is released, it makes a trade. Is that kind of thing? Does that kind well, of thing there happen? are funds that are doing that. Um, you know, there's been a lot of press over the last few months about uh, funds that farm um, feeds from Twitter, um, uh, from from RSS, from all kinds of of uh, different dynamic content i i uh, i don't do that um my program is looking exclusively at at price at volume over the previous you know two minutes to two days so yeah and so when you just step in when you feel like there's been an event that needs to be taken into consideration not 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 you're not it's not a news reader it's not right. it doesn't have some special event descriptors it's just like this is going to malform the markets uh or you know for the, a short period of time but it really has nothing to do with anything so let's just move on it, exactly right it, it's basically i mean there are a few ways that i have of of uh, tweaking the 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 behavior of the program but i i try not to do that because i have a back testing model that i have some confidence in so i try to assist it but it's very important that i don't start taking directional views because you know I'm a horrible directional trader. I, 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 if I go long, go short. Honestly, the market goes short. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like the what's it? The George Costanza, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. whatever his instinct was was it was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 sad, but it's true. I mean, I I, I tried back in college even. Um, I tried to day trade, and I'm not a very good day trader. Um, I think the truth is most most people aren't. So if you want to find 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 an edge. Mm, you, you really have to uh, go beyond the normal comfort zone. Do something a little bit different. Okay, so it, you, you know, I think you mentioned offline that you trade um, in and out of positions throughout the day. So it's yes. not like you're just putting trades on at the beginning of the day or end of the day. And uh, the, the program itself does all of the trades, so it's fully automated, right? Exactly right, exactly right. Now, did and, it start off that way, or did you, le- did you sort of like um, leg into it where you built something that would – that would just generate some signals and then you type them in and then later on you made the final step. I mean, how, how did that go? Well, no, it was always built to behave this way. Um, yeah. And this goes back to the point I was making earlier about finding a value proposition or an edge. I mean, what's my edge? My edge is the fact that I have a, a computer program which can trade 23 hours a day, which can trade six days a week. Right. Um, that's something that I have that a manual trader, a discretionary trader might not have. So um, I, I am taking full advantage of the fact that this is computerized by allowing it to trade uh, on a tick by tick basis all day long, all week long. Is there ever a point where you're watching this thing trading and it's just going down and it's going down and it's going down <laughs> yeah. and it's this computer yeah. programming that's just siphoning off your oh, money? 
what, what, how do you deal with that stress? <laughs> and, and how do you stick yeah, there? I drink a lot. <laughs> no, um, uh, I will say that uh, one thing that I do now more than I used to is um, uh, I can put on a hedging trade. If I feel like my program is leaning too far in one direction, and it, it can do that. You know, and because- when you say that, just for our listeners, when it's leaning, meaning that you're too long or you're too short. So you're long the market. The market starts tanking. So you're yeah. leaning long. You're, you're, you, you've bought a lot more stocks than you've sold, for instance. Exactly. You know, if, say, based on price trends over the last two hours, over the last day, the program, for some reason, thinks it wants to get really long. But I know for a fact that in, in, you know, in 10 minutes, some potential market move event's going to occur. There's going to be a press release or something. Well, um, I want to hedge my bet. So if the program is long 10, you know, 10 contracts, then I might sell a couple in a, in a different account just so that over the long run, I can even out the performance. I mean, a lot of times, in fact, more often than not, the hedging trades that I put on, um, they lose. But I think it serves the value of of um, evening out the gains and the losses, and that by itself has it, 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 you know, that's a good thing. That's what investors want to see. Right. Well, also probably it's better for your uh, your quality of life, right? My sanity. <laughs> You're saying your wife's sanity, everything like that. So, yeah. does it do, does it go up as quickly as it goes down, or does it go down faster than it goes up, or is that a stupid, My- that's a stupid question? <laughs> are you, are well, you, go ahead and answer it. Go ahead and answer it. Are you talking about the program's ability to buy and sell, or let, let, let me? I'll, I'll, I'll give you the thinking okay. behind the question. Um, I did some automated program programming for a system called Betfair, which is like a, a, a betting exchange. And what I noticed was that the gains were very incremental, and then all of a sudden, in one tick, the loss was massive. Now, maybe it could have just been my programming or whatever, but that that's that's what basically stopped me from doing it because I just couldn't take. Yeah, the stress. no, that's. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and that's something that, that uh, people who are both investors as well as fund managers need to be aware of. It's not just about the amount that you make or lose, but it's about the distribution of, when those, of what it looks like when you're gaining and you're losing. So if you, have, if you do your backtesting and you end up with a nice little bell curve, great. That mean, and of course, it's a bell curve where the mean is positive, great. A lot of times what you end up with is what you described, where uh, the mean might be positive, but you have this big old bulge on the losing side where once in a year you have a 10% chance that you go bankrupt. You know, I mean, that's not acceptable. Yeah. And Justin, that, and, and what they, that's termed a fat-tailed distribution. And um, it's also for people who, want to, who know anything about options, that's why you, uh, the out-of-the-money puts tend to be higher-priced than the corresponding out-of-the-money calls, right? Because things can go down. People are more freaked out or worried about that quick drop. Well, in, in my case, I actually trade um, commodities uh, in addition to equities. So uh, when you're talking about things like you know, crude oil or, or corn prices, uh, you're really concerned about both ends of that tail because uh, you have consumers and mm-hmm. as well as producers that are very concerned about a certain price. I see. Right, right. Is there any truth to the fact that automated trading brings oil up to $200 a barrel? No. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, there are a lot of people in the financial industry that don't like computerized trading at all. Um, they were making a ton 
uh, five years ago, and uh, they don't want to see that change. And I'm not sure why that has to change. But and, and you know, it's important to really point out too that that the rate of change in this field has been tremendously fast. Only the last two or three years, a lot of this didn't exist. You know, Jason, when you were doing it, you were really on the cutting edge. Um, yeah, man, I, I, re- I remember doing the very first thing back in 1999, writing a Java interface to a C API to the Eurex, which is a German and the Deutsche Börse, their yeah. electronic exchange. So I had to register and go through a course to become a registered Eurex trader and then write to this antiquated C API. And, right. and we had, we're going to co-locate these servers in Germany. And uh, I mean, and I had to write, there was no UI. I mean, this was old school. And then even later when um, the, when I was doing it in 2003, I mean, yeah, we were co-locating servers in Chicago um, and, uh, you know, there were no, there was no ninja trader. There was none of this uh, stuff. Yeah. 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 So, no. And, and also if you just take a look at the breakdown in terms of the, the amount of trades that are being placed, you know, on the floor by phone and blocks, as opposed to what's being traded by computer, um, it's been a tidal wave the last three, four years um, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of the trading pits and the floors were still doing okay. Well, actually, they were thriving. And then five years ago, they were doing okay. And now, by a large, uh, the pits are dying off. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that, I saw that in 99. I remember, I remember when I was uh, talking with some traders, and that's why I moved into it. And they were asking me what they thought was going to happen in the you know, in the future of trading, I said, well, this, all this, this, this entire floor, the Chicago Board Options Exchange, Chicago Trade, it's going away, man. I mean, it's too inefficient. It's all going electronic. And so the first people who develop electronic systems um, and have their technologies in place and understand how the game is played are going to clean up. But, and of course, it's played out that way, um, you know, which is just, I mean, you bet on technology and you're generally going to win. It's just about <laughs> Win. Right. So, so uh, I, w- I want to get. I want to ask you some more and some inside base. I want to get a little inside baseball here. On you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We've been doing the layman's questions. So let me. Let's get uh, the details. So, uh, you know, you're doing your back testing. Are you back testing with one minute bars? Or are you back testing with tick data? I I am back testing with one minute bars. How do you? Okay. So if you're trading intraday. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, which means that you're clipping in and out. I, I don't know. Well, let me ask you this first. I mean, how many times are you in and out on, a, I don't know, a given stock or a given future on, on any given day? What's sort of the range? Um, so in the futures world, uh, we often talk about it in this way. Um, number of round, round trips trip. per million per year okay. or per month. I mean, per time period, right? Um, and for a traditional, you know, some guy in an office with a ruler and a mouse or a phone, you know, maybe they're doing uh, 300, maybe 1,000 round trips um, per million dollars invested, right? So if they are trading an account of $1 million, then they'll trade 1,000 contracts per month, right? I am currently at about 15,000 okay. round trips per per million. Um, okay. So in terms of the number of trades per, per day, we're on the order of, um, you know, 400 to 800. 400. In, but, and, but that's not on the same contracts or different, different. So it's not like yeah. you're all trading, there are oil contracts, you're trading stocks, you're trading futures. Well, they're actually, it's actually, distri- it's probably, uh, you know, in a typical month, we're talking 
um, 400 to 800 trades per day distributed across maybe eight to 10 instruments. Okay. So, you, oh, okay. So you're out, you know, maybe a dozen times a day on a single yeah. instrument at times. Okay. Oh, so yeah. here's my question. If you're in and out, you're intraday. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think that using one minute bars, because, you know, for people who don't know, a one minute bar, if you break the trading day up into 390 minutes, you have a, and you say each one minute period, you have a, the price when, at the start of that minute, which is called the opening price, the price at the, at the end of that minute, which is called the closing price, and the high and the low during that one minute period. So that's called right. a bar. So you have an open, uh, open, high, low, and close, and then a volume. And so you have 390 of those bars, this is 390 minutes, and what you do is you say, okay, well, if I'm going to have some strategy and I buy, you know, at, the, at this bar, well, you're just making an assumption that when I put in a price, I'm going to get filled at some price, and I'm going to assume it's going to be the opening price of the next bar or, or something like that, and then when I get out, but that's a big assumption sometimes, depending on how fast the market's going to move, and um, what you end up having to do is... Um, is account for what they call slippage. So I assume mm-hmm. that I'm going to get filled at the opening price, but I might say I'm going to give myself a margin of error of another penny or two just to say, well, I'm probably not going to get filled at the, at the level I want. So my question is, how does that work for you? How do you account for slippage? Yeah, I, I, so uh, inside of, I mean, the easy answer first, um, inside of NinjaTrader, there is a, a parameter that can be configured, um, and it says for each trade, assume that I'm going to lose two or three ticks, two or three or four ticks. Um, okay. it, I think the more important answer is uh, a. I'm trading mostly products that are liquid. You know, uh, I, I think again, going back to the question about having an edge, I don't want to get into a product where no one trades it on the screen, and if, if I tried to trade, I would get killed um, on the fill. I, I would get a, you know, if I'm buying, I have to pay a lot more than the fair price. Or if I have to sell, I have to, um, you know, I get a lot lower price than than the correct fair market value. So I am looking for markets that are very liquid. Um, and, you know, two, my trading volumes, although they're high compared to, to the buy and click guy who's in his office, um, they're not so high, you know, 10, 12 trades a day. It's not high enough that I'm, I'm that concerned. Um, okay. So, so, but, but so, that, so what you're saying is, so when you backtest a strategy and it says you would have made an average of X, you know, cents per share per trade right. or something. A lot of times that's how people talk about it. So it's like, you know, I made seven cents per share. Or I made two cents per share. Well, if your slippage is higher, you know, if you assume, okay, well, I made, you know, three cents per share on this strategy backtested over the past six months. And then it turns out that you lost an average of a penny and a half getting in and getting out, well, really, you would have made any money, but you, you just didn't assume enough slippage. So the question is, I mean, how do you, in your backtest, I mean, you're, have you just traded enough that you have a pretty good idea what slippage is going to be, so you know that when you backtest that the profitability is going to have to be beyond a certain threshold? Well, you know, a key part of that process of going from backtesting to live trading is seeing how it trades uh, in the real world and if it correlates uh, to what you saw in backtesting, and I've seen it go both ways. I've seen a lot of instruments that do exactly what my backtesting expected. So I'm tracking all of these things, by the way. I'm tracking the quality of the fills. I'm, um, um, as opposed, you know, if I enter the price, if I enter a trade at this price, what it's the ultimate fill that I got on that trade. So I can track that parameter both in backtesting as well as in live trading and see, see how well I'm doing there. And then there are instruments where it doesn't, it, it's not as good where, where I do lose a lot more than the potential margin that backtesting um, 
uh, would have indicated. And, and if that's the case, then I don't trade that instrument anymore. So there was a filtering right. process. There's definitely a filtering process that, that, that goes on. Um, and, and even for one instrument, it can change over time. I mean, I, I've had my theory, my working theory is that, you know, of course, there are market-making firms um, uh, that are quoting these things, right? So imagine if I'm a big firm and, and I'm not, I'm not going to go waste my time going out there trying to think of the next great way to make money. All I want to do is just be on the, on the bid and the, and the offer, right? Meaning I want to work right. both sides of the market. And then if person wants to buy, I'll sell, sell, sell. If, uh, but I'll move my price away and then I will sell it back and then I'll buy it back from a different person. Right. You know, right. for, for, um, it, it's, uh, for, you know, their calculus is just very, very, very different, uh, from mine. And occasionally they'll turn off their programs. Um, either right. because they've had a bad month. Um, and if that occurs, then all of a sudden an instrument that traded well for me might not do well anymore. Right. Okay, so yeah, I just to uh, be curiosity, I mean, just to finish off this one topic about ticks and one bar. So, you know, I had actually built a backtester that, I built a tick backtester, right, so that every single, you would know what the bid offer and, uh, you know, was every millisecond roughly, right? So that I, you, could, you could really have an accurate backtest. Right. And it actually went so far at one point of, of, of um, simulating the actual NASDAQ book. So you can buy every add, cancel, and modify order. Right. You know, we do, you're talking about terabytes of data, but, and it takes a little time to get through it to, to simulate it compared to, of course, you know, just text versus, or even or bars, obviously. But then you can actually simulate the book. So every buy order and every sell order that's away from the market that's ordered by price and then by time, and you say, well, when did I put my ad order and when I put my cancel order? And then I'm like, it's your, your, your dollar simulation versus real is extremely accurate. So had you ever thought of doing, or, or was it just never necessary in your eyes to maybe go one level deeper and say, okay, I'm going I'm to backtest uh, tick and yes. see if I can get a little more edge or whatever. So uh, in the case of my particular trading approach that I'm doing now, that was not necessary. But I, I am completely in agreement with you that that, that is uh, important for certain trading algorithmic approaches. And, and in fact, some of the the biggest bucks are, are being made by funds that do exactly that. Um, but what I've also been told, you know, so, so these are what's known as the HFTs, the high frequency traders. They, they invest in being co-located right by the exchange. So they get the fees. They get all the ticks a little bit faster than the rest of the world. Um, and they have very complicated ways of taking advantage of that price flow, that order flow, right? So if they see... For example, someone coming in um, and being on the bid for, you know, they want to buy a, a million Intel or they have some way, some heuristic that it uses to determine there's a lot of buying interest. Well, right. now they can immediately get in front of that, right? They'll, they will buy in front of this big buyer um, sure. and, they'll buy up, and they'll buy up a whole bunch knowing that this guy is there still and he'll probably pursue the price up and he can turn around and sell that around that person but what i've been told is that if you're running an hft type of type approach backtesting is not very effective you know it, it's at that level it's really turned into um a contest of of jabs you know it's like you, you, you it, it's not really possible to backtest a, a a boxing match because it's you have two partners and they're really 
um, playing with each other, and one is going to act directly as a consequence of what the other person is doing. Right. Uh, Too much feedback. So, yeah. So, so the way that they do it is they, all they can do is they turn it on. You know, they have this concept. They turn it on, see if it makes money for a few days. If it does, great. Uh, if it doesn't, they, they are killed off. Yeah, well, that was going to say, that's been my, from the people I've talked to in HFT, that's what I've, that's what I've heard as well. They don't do a lot of backtesting. It's sort of yeah. just, you know, they, they test it live. Go on. Isn't there a point where if all of that, that jabbing, you, you talk that jabbing technique, there'll be so many people doing that, that then backtesting your, your methods will potentially not work because of the randomness of the, the marketplace due, due to that. Jabbing it's all a question of that time frame, you know, I mean, there, there, that's partly why I don't want to compete at that, at that level. Um, uh, I think, uh, it, it does become, um, a very technical, um, competition at, at that time frame. You know, you have people that are, um, buying FPGAs, right? They program their algorithm in hardware just because it's a little bit faster than if they actually had something that had to go through the kernel and hit, you know, your user application. That takes too long. Let's do it in hardware. Um, so I, I don't get involved in that. I'm trading 12 times a day, so, or approximately, right? So if I'm doing that, then, then uh, I'm not concerned. Yeah. But what I'm saying is if, if 80% of the market ends up doing the jabbing technique, then doesn't the market just become utterly no? Random? Because you have in because things with a randomness at one scale rolled up and aggregated come up with some kind of statistical, you know, I don't know if it called normality, but you know, it, it, the randomness I think becomes you have you have very clear, um, I guess, movements. I, I don't yeah, know. It, buying, it, it, it it doesn't affect things at a different time frame. It, it's uh, uh, it's a little bit like you know, if you if you could get close enough. With water, um, water molecules move according to what's called Brownian motion, right? So each molecule is bouncing up against each other according to a well-known random dis- uh, distribution. But for those of us who are not at that angle, when we see water, all we see is an ocean or a lake or a river. So I can still trade according to the tides, even if I can't predict exactly what's going on at the level of that individual molecule. Right. Interesting. And also you were talking about um, the fact that the crash was so bad. Now, now that you've got this knowledge and, it, and let's say we went back through that time, do you think you could survive an awful, awful crash? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because, uh, uh, because my, my uh, fund launched on post to, to 2008, of course. And the first question, any in, Investor asks is exactly that one. It's like, well, it's awfully convenient that you're launching now, isn't it? I mean, would you have, how would you have done in 2008? And I'll be honest with you, backtesting through the, the, the crash itself is kind of hopeless for all the reasons that was just talked about. Because at that point, um, the, you know, the water had become so agitated. Um, the bars were so wide uh, that, that uh, <laughs> it's very difficult to say that I could have done well in that 2008 environment. And what I've always told investors was I'm watching out for market dynamics and I would try to get out. You know, if the patterns, if the interest patterns are no longer conforming to the historical trends that I tested for, then I get out. Okay. 
and uh, and people are always kind of you know nod and say okay whatever you know it's kind of a, a nice convenient answer we'll see a lot of people say that the last um, three three months has been uh, if not quite 2008 it's been very close to it um, we haven't had the complete breakdown but it's been very wild so that 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 leads me to this question which is. What criteria do you use to determine when a strategy is no longer working? Because if based on, you know, just the probabilities, if you have if you backtest a strategy, you say, well, you know, it has this probability of profit that I should see. It should converge to, you know, these these metrics. But at what point what are your lines to say, OK, this is clearly it's not just I'm having a bad it's having a bad run. The strategy is no longer valid. Yeah, uh, that's a very hard question, um, and I don't have a quantitative answer. You know, there was not a a firm number where if I am down, you know, fifty five percent of the time, therefore it means it's not working. I think it's more or less a discretionary call. Um, and I, at this point in time, I'm making that call on an instrument by instrument basis every month. So uh, there have been times. Where I'll say, "Oh my gosh, you know, cocoa is crazy this month. This is, this is nuts." Uh, you know, there are parameters that I'm tracking: um, the number of, uh, you know, the range, the daily range, uh, um, my ability to get good fills, um, the number of times prices um, might change direction. Right. So if it goes up and down twice per minute, that's okay. If it goes up and down a hundred times per minute, then it's broken, and somebody can make money on this market, but it's not going to be me. And I'll close, I'll, I will just you know, close it out at that point. Well, what, um, okay. Yeah, okay. I actually have two questions on this. Okay. The first would be what kind of percent return on capital are you shooting for? Um, annualized return. You know, it, it's, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 I want to talk about it, but you know, there, there are firm SEC rules on uh, what you can say in public about a investment fund. So, okay. All right. So let's wait yeah. this around. Okay. I'll, let's play a little game here. Okay. <laughs> if I say, if I say, hey, Tom, my lawyers know, I, don't play games. <laughs> I mean, t- every time I ask my lawyer an opinion about something, it's just like a one-word answer. No, don't do it. If I said, if I said my my strategy made fifty percent this year, would you be impressed or not impressed? <laughs> okay. Now that's a, that's a very that's a very good question. In fact, it was my first one on Elite Trader. I, I was kind of like, hey, hey, guys, you know what's a good return because you get people, it, it's, you know, people are bragging about their, about their money, their fortunes. Like what's my target here? Right. Um, and the truth is, uh, once you, you, you dig past all the BS and all the bragging that a lot of individual traders do, you know, go to a data, a database that tracks performance from the professional fund managers. Okay. There's one called IASG.com. There is a Barclay Hedge.com, um, HSBC publishes a weekly report that tells you how all the funds are doing and see what they're doing over time. And uh, uh, what you'll find is um, it's not just about returns. So it's not that 50% number, but that number, uh, how risk adjusted. volatile. Yeah, you have to adjust sure. your returns by risk. You have to, to look at max drawdown. I didn't know how important mass drawdown initially. Um, well, I, you know, it's something that you think about. Like, I don't want to lose a lot of money, but only as I got in this deeper and deeper, I'm 
you know, it, it's a very key parameter. It's a very important yeah. parameter. So, you know, one, one rule of thumb um, uh, from a max drawdown, and, and for those that don't know, max drawdown is uh, the, 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 it's the gap between the peak of your monthly gains to the valley. So if you're up 10% in March, uh, but then in April you're down 10%, then your drawdown was 20%, right? Because so, you went from right. plus 10 for the year to minus 10 for the year. Um, max drawdown should be approximately, I've heard 1 to 1 versus your a- annual returns or 1 to 2. Okay. So your max drawdown should be 50% of your, a- annual, um, your annual gains. Huh. That's a different way of looking at uh, sort of a sharp risk-adjusted return. Well, that's on the sharp. I mean, so you also wanted to t- take a look at the sharp as well. So you have to take a look okay. at that. Uh, uh, maybe you want to explain what the, what that is. <laughs> so when when you are um, doing your back tests for in, you know this short term intraday trading, how far yeah. w- what how far back do you go? I mean, when you do a test, I mean, are you looking three months back or six months back, or is this variable depending on how dynamic the markets have been? Um, it's a function of, of both. Uh, I, I will look back um, as far as I have good, good quality data for. So that, that can be three, four years, not including the worst months of uh, 2008. Okay, so, but even, but sometimes these intraday trading strategies can come and go. So something could come and work for six months. So something that might be awesome for the next six months might not have done so well two years ago. So if you're worried about how it did two years ago, um, maybe you're throwing out something that'd be really good now. I mean, what are your thoughts on, I don't know, something like that? Yeah, I, I think, I think that is completely true. You do have to constantly evaluate your, your good as well as, 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 as bad. Uh, um, again, in, in the context of what I'm doing now, I'm only trading one way, but I do trade across multiple instruments. So if an instrument is not doing well, I'll, I will pull it. Um, but I'll keep an eye on it in three months. Right. Down the road, I'll, I'll do more back testing and say, oh, it's, the market has gone back to normal, so I'll get back in. Can anyone invest in your fund? Like, could, could I put $20 in your fund, or is it something that is, uh, you know, requires a um, million-dollar yeah. investment? Uh, so this applies to angel investing, to VC investing, as well as to, um, to, to a fund product. It's all uh, controlled by the SEC, and you have to be an accredited investor. Um, and the legal definition of a accredited investor go online and Google I, I want to say it's something like you, you have to make $200,000 a year in income. You have to have a million dollars net worth. Um, uh, things along those lines. And, and the SEC does that to protect um, investors that it thinks is not mature enough to take on the risks of a private investment. Right, right. So, um, why did you, if you if you were doing well with your own capital, why did you decide to start a fund? Uh, I ask myself that question all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I uh, you know, fund, fundraising ha- has not been um, a lot of fun. I, I, I've, you know, uh, uh, because of exactly what I just said about the SEC's regulation of fundraising in general. I can't market to non-accredited investors. And even accredited investors, I can't approach them. You have to be a right. broker-dealer to approach 
uh, a, a credit investor that you don't personally have a a previous uh, working relationship with. So I can talk to my friends, I can talk to my co coworkers, my previous colleagues. That's fine. But uh, you know, if I go off and and I find a database of wealthy people, I can't contact them. I can't post on my site. I can't. I can't brag about it. I can't talk to you guys about it. It's 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 got to be something where um, uh, the broker dealers, you know, the Goldman Sachs of the world, they're the ones that, by law, have to be involved in the fundraising process. Right, right, right. So, um, but I didn't answer your question about why. Um, and the why is, I did the math. I don't think it hurts me to attempt to fundraise and trade other people's money. Um, and then, and of course, taking a percentage of the cut. So if you're, if you're rather than trading a couple million of your own dollars, you trade a hundred million, you take, you know, 20% of the profit or something. I mean, for people who don't know, in, in, hedge, for, in hedge funds, the standard split is 20 and two. So you take 20% of the profits and 2% of the total capital and management fee. Yeah. And I do want to say, I think this is probably going to be okay by my attorneys. I, I want to say that I'm not a big fan of that model. I don't like the management fee. Um, mm-hmm. Coming as a, as a previous angel investor, I want everyone's interests to be aligned. And I think it's patently unfair that I'm paying you uh, even if you lose my money. Um, I think there right. should only be an incentive fee. Right, right, right. So you, you said that you've, you've been trading this one strategy. I mean, why haven't you broadened down to trading, researching and testing out some other strategies? Is it just because they've worked so well that you just haven't had to worry about it or, or what? Well, um, for one thing... Uh, while I'm still attempting to fundraise for for my current fund, um, my investors need to know that this is what I'm doing. Uh, you know, this is what they're investing oh, right. into. Um, so that track record that I built over the last you know two or three years um, is is based on this one piece of code, and uh, and they can have confidence that going forward it's going to be the same approach that they're investing in. Um, in the long run, if it comes to the point where I feel like this is not working anymore, and I definitely think it's a distinct possibility I, because, uh, again, I have that engineer's view of things. It, this is working because there is a, a technology gap, and I can use my technology more effective than everyone else. But if the rest of the market catches up um, and my edge goes away, then I will definitely do that. I will definitely go out there and see if I can find new concepts. Right, right, right. And what about, um, you know, one thing you mentioned is that you trade using NinjaTrader. So I imagine the, you're trading on a computer at your home. You're, I mean, you're, the computer's located at your home. It's not a co-located server somewhere. Is that right? Nope, nope, nope. They are co-located. They're actually in the same oh, building. Okay. Yeah, they're actually in the same building as the exchange um, uh, at the CME. Um, and, and, you know, a, a huge part of my worst fear is... Uh, a computer going down, uh, a program going down. So you have to have the monitoring built in. And I think this will uh, appeal to all the tech geeks out there. You know I mean? It's, it, it's uh, 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 a big part of the value proposition is that I can do this well, that, that, that because, um, you know, having automated trading isn't just a piece, of, a piece of program that buys and sells, but how do you recover? How do you deal with failure, right? Um, all right. And and if you don't have a complete piece, then you're not gonna you're not gonna last. 
So in, in, in my case, I actually have three identical servers that are co-located. Um, if one goes down and they have, I can be up and going on a backup in about 10 minutes. That's not too bad. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. What, well, what about, who's your uh, brokerage now? Uh, so my execution platform, I use um, a uh, execution platform called Rhythmic, R-I-T-H-M-I-C. Um, okay. And they actually, they actually have a C++ as well as C-sharp API um, mm-hmm. for, for anyone that wants to write to them directly without going through Ninja at all. Um, right. So, you know, they're the ones I'm talking through my program, through their API. Uh, their servers have incoming data feeds from all the exchanges that they, that they tie into. So the CME, the NYMEX, the NYBOT, um, uh, URX. Right, um, and they're the ones that will then take my order, convert it into the proper uh, XML uh, uh, format that the, that the exchange wants, and then uh, take care of the execution and then pass back um, an update in terms of was I filled, was the order canceled, et cetera, et cetera. No, is are you only trading futures? Because I think Rhythmic is. It looks like they're. It sounds like they're just a. They're not an equity execution. Uh, I think they do have an equity side now, but but uh, to answer the question, yes, at this point I'm only trading futures, um, and 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 that's not purely a technical reason. It, it, in the past, um, I started off with trading equities. In fact, I, I like to tell investors that I traded my first futures contract in June of 2009, and uh, two months later I thought I would launch a fund. <laughs> I always get the laugh uh-huh. out of. Them. <laughs> um, no, I, I began with equities. Um, Futures are are a little bit better in a number of ways, but I like it because the regulation is a little bit different. From a trading point of view, I only deal with what's, uh, with the NFA, the National Futures, futures Association. Yeah, sure. Association. Um, I don't have to deal with the SEC for trading. Um, right. And also, the, there are also tax advantages for right because it's what like futures. it's like forty five or thirty five percent is treated as long term capital gains versus or non-regular versus regular income or whatever versus uh, it's, trading it it's out. 40. It's yeah, it's 40. Uh, 60, 40. Uh, and 60% okay, right. is, is long-term, I think. I always get the two confused. Yeah, I think you're right. I think 60, yeah, 40, as opposed to if you're trading in and out of stocks in a yeah. year, it's all regular income. It's, so yeah, you have a tax advantage there. Yeah. And uh, you probably also have like a capital efficiency advantage, right? Because you have a margins on, you know, on futures where a stock, you have to buy the whole stock. Uh, and the best you can do in stock is if you're trading intraday, you can have a four to one leverage, right? Yeah, yeah. Although with prime brokers, I mean, they they they, they will don't really find, care. They will find you a way to lever up. So, uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to invest in a manager that was really trying to lever up quite that much, anyways. Um, right. But 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 uh, yeah. So that is, it, it's also true that, that at least I'm not paying margin debt. You know, if I if I borrow money from my broker. Um, to buy Intel stock, I, I have to pay interest in one form or another. Right, right. So what about commissions? I mean, have you had to fight hard to get your commissions down? I mean, has that been a, yeah. a, 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 a sort of a, a factor in your profitability? Yeah, you know, uh, especially in the futures world, you know, the historically, um, the futures trader was would be some 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 doctor in Kansas, right? And then mm-hmm. uh, some... Uh, some not so nice introducing broker will call him up, will get his name from database, and convince them that you know it's 
over time, the cost of heating oil is going to go through go go through the roof. You should think about buying some heating oil, and you know, so this guy will buy one contract or two two contracts per year, and they'll charge you fifty dollars, a hundred dollars in commission. Um, it's only the last few years that this has has changed, and uh, I, I trade so much that commissions are a huge consideration, and I try to cut that number as much as possible. So do you negotiate with the same firm or do you have like, you set up multiple accounts with multiple brokerages and threaten to jump to another brokerage if they don't meet your demands? <laughs> uh, I've, I mean, I don't like the I black know, the way I, Cause yeah. I know that's a strategy that some of these high frequency trading shops will set up. They would set up accounts, right. With two or three yeah. of these, these, these brokerages and say, listen, you know, we got X millions of, you know, a volume a day or whatever. Um, you either give us a tenth of a cent a share or a twentieth of a cent, or we're moving over, across, you know, to these other guys to the flip of a switch, and they're and they're like, oh, okay, <laughs> right, and then they then they get their wishes down so low that a whole different set of strategies is is possible. Yeah, no, I I I've had that kind of conversation because at the end of the day, it's a math question, you know, it's like, do I like you enough that I'm paying a thousand dollars more per 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 week to trade through you and. and you know, in general, it's not worthwhile. I, I'm going to go to the place that has the lowest cost. Since, since in terms of the service that they offer, it's a commodity. Uh, no yeah. pun intended, right? Um, but at the same time, um, the broker that I'm with right now, I, 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 I have a good personal, personal bond with the CEO, um, and and he's he's given me lots of advantages beyond the commissions. You know, he's allow he allows me to set my own risk. Right. I mean, that's that's cool. That's cool. So I mean, and, he, oh, well, your own risk limits, you mean they don't put risk limits that we're talking about? Exactly. OK. And they do put risk. Well, I do because I do want protection. But uh, with the way that I trade, um, anything that they could pre-program in would be incorrect. So it's a lot better for me to have that direct capability to go in there and, and say I'm only going to be allowed to buy X, Y, Z of this um, on a given day. And I, I don't know if there are a lot of a lot of uh, FCMs out there that would give me that privilege. And, you know, he's just, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a good team that I work with. So I do put some premium on that. And therefore um, they're not the lowest offer that I have on hand, but they've come a lot closer because I, I do push them quite a bit. Right. And the, like, it's a latency is an issue, right? So it's like getting the latency down because you've co-located there. Um, I mean, if you're in the same building, I guess you're, you're, yeah. you're good. You're good on well, that. And then you get the low, low rates. The, the 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 broker is actually so in the futures world it's a little bit different from the equity world but in the futures world um the broker or the clearinghouse they're not really necessarily involved in the actual trading right all all, all they do is they clear for you and and right. so i actually execute my trades through rhythmic so they're the ones that talk to to the exchange and, and says you know chains of cap capital has just bought two crude oil right right um, Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's cleared by the FCM, meaning it's the FCM right. that's taking the risk that I won't be able to meet the losses on those two crude oil. And it ends up in my account with the FCM. But, but you know, they're not involved in the trading part at all. Right. And then, and then you, so you, so you have, an, you have your, 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 cause that's, yeah, and your clearing firm, I guess it's called FCMs in the futures world. You have your execution platform, which is rhythmic, right. uh, and the different variations of that for equities is like Genesis and Lightspeed and Ready and I guess those yeah. other ones. And then for data, and for data, you're using IQ feed, I think you mentioned to me the other day. Yeah. So, so uh, my primary data feed is actually coming through rhythmic as well. Um, okay. Uh, I, I've run some tests, 
on how good the latency is and how clean the feed is. And uh, Rhythmic has been good. So right. I have no complaints there. I also use IQ feed um, as a backup. I mean, I, 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 you know, my big fear is uh, one thing. I don't want to have one point of failure, period. Um, I'm not going to lose money because one company went down. So I have redundancies on the, on the hosting side. I have redundancies on data feed. I do have backup brokers so that if and when, for some reason, I can't go through Rhythmic, I have a backup channel available to me. Um, uh, so, and, and, and in fact, like um, one big question that, that comes up is that I had to put a lot of thought into is, you know, assume they pull the plug on my computer, right? And I have no idea how much crude oil I've bought in, in the last year or in the last day because right, right. it's dead, right? I, I can't get to it. I can't get to my logs. So I actually log all of my data. All my trades are logged through Amazon EC2. Okay. Good idea. Right. Yeah. Send them there. Yeah. So, so, so that no matter what happens, uh, as long as my, my computer can reach Amazon at the same time it was placing trades, and I think that's a pretty – you know, it's still, there's still risk there, but I think that's a pretty good bet. Then I will at least get an accurate view of exactly what my trades are. Right. So what have been sort of your, your biggest mistakes along the way? What are your, you know, your blow-ups or points where you thought you'd almost quit or, or, or any of that? Give it, you know, you have any good stories or good lessons? Yeah. Yeah. You know, okay. So talk about curve fitting. Um, here's one <laughs> unclear example of, of bad curve fitting that almost led me to close down early on in the process. Um, uh, I, I, I trade coffee. Um, mm-hmm. Coffee, uh, the pit for coffee opens at, uh, I want to say, eight, uh, uh, 8.30 East Coast time. Okay. okay. Um, but the futures trading on, on the screen via computer uh, begins at uh, 3.30 East Coast time in the morning. Right. right? Um, and my backtesting told me that uh, prices from you know, 3.30 until 8.30 before the pit opened were random. You know, not that important. Just because if I just ignore that time frame, that's not when the real players are in the market. There's a lot of noise. Just, just ignore it. it. It improved my overall gains by, I don't know, 100 points or something, right? I was like, cool. All right. I'll go ahead and do that. Well, on this one given day um, in June of last, of last year, so very early in the process, um, coffee moved a lot <laughs> before it right. opened. Right. Um, you know, coffee has a tendency to do that because uh, um, they, they, uh, 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 they're very vulnerable to temperature changes in, in uh, I want to say Brazil. Yeah. And so if there was a, a danger of cold weather coming through, coffee prices are going to go through the roof. Well, I, I, I got killed. Um, uh, that was the first time that I had been down. I mean, I'd been training for about a year at that point, and I had never had a down month. My back test right. showed occasionally I wouldn't have one, but I hadn't. Um, worst of all, that was uh, the first and only month, actually, the first month that my parents had invested in my fund. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been, I didn't encourage them because I, I have a bad history of investing their money, but they wanted to encourage me, I guess. So, so they, they, they put in some money and, and, and of course I'm down like, you know, eight nine percent um, uh, a week into into their little 
um, participation uh. in my fund. Yeah, so that killed me. And and I really wanted to quit because it's hard trading other people's money. It's it's not that hard losing your own money. It's extremely painful losing other people's money. Especially mom and dad's, right? I mean, that's going to be the worst money of all to lose. Yeah, yeah. Well, so at the end, end at the end of the month, um, we we all agreed that it was a good idea that that they pull out their investment and they haven't been in there since. Jeez. Oh, how did you how did you bring it back? Well, so you'd lost the you'd lost nine percent for the for a week. So that, did you then stop trading coffee and just make everything up? Uh, with your other no, issues? actually, um, I think in the context, I mean, I don't even remember the details now but but I, but yeah yeah i think uh uh i think i did continue to trade coffee with the adjustment where i now uh don't do that same kind of convenient curve fitting where i just ignore large amounts of data just because um i i i try to watch for worst cases right and, and uh uh so now um i i do trade from you know that pre pit open period but but I'm not as aggressive about it as I would be during pit hours. But at least I'm I'm awake, right? Um, as far as how I, right. I made made it back, I mean, uh, what what can I say? I mean, I, it's been a good it's been a good year or two. I'm not sure if my my attorney is going to be okay with me saying that. But I will say that it's I uh, I've been pleased. Um, and uh, fundraising is not proceeding. Well, not because of my performance, but just pu- just purely because I'm not from the industry and uh, I don't have long enough of a track record. You don't have a personal Rolodex that makes it easy to sort of get the word of mouth going. Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I mean, um, uh, if I'm a trader that came from uh, a previous fund and I launched a new fund, uh, very easy to get investors into that kind of a product, despite the fact that my new fund will probably look a whole lot like the one I just left, right? right. So, so for for an investor, you're not getting, assuming you're investing in, in in the previous fund that I was in, you're not getting diversified. It's not improving your performance. All you're doing is you're doubling up on your exposure, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, I I'm trying to be patient about it, um, and I uh, hope for for improvements do you do you have any advice for any aspiring algorithmic traders and like what like for what you've learned like how you would what would be the i don't know what would be the quickest route to to getting something going and, and not making a bunch of dumb mistakes well um you know this is this is kind of uh, equivalent to the advice that i would give to someone that was trying to launch um a dot com or a uh, or seek angel or BC investing in um, in a different context. You know, I mean, um, you want to be aggressive, but be prepared. You know, it's not about um, trying to rush out there and get into a, a concept and make it work now or never. You 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 really have to lay out the groundwork in the angel world. Um, uh, that to me means uh, get your Get a comprehensive business model up and going. Think about um, how you're going to monetize. Think about how you're going to distribute um, uh, and, and have a compelling picture put in place that you've thought about all of the factors and the only thing you need is capital, right? Um, right. In the investing world, it, it's not so different from that. I would say, again, go, go, go out there, learn about the capital markets as uh, – a undergraduate kind of uh, approach, you know, just make sure you understand 
um, why prices move the way that they move, and then start thinking about places where you have an advantage, you know, find the value proposition. Um, I think, uh, you know, if my current idea died, I would be going out there and really exploring the ETFs. You know, there's tons of ETFs out there now. Um, right. And intuitively, a, an ETF, an exchange trade, trade, traded fund, the price of an ETF is going to be correlated in some way to the price movements of the underlying, right, of the right. companies that, 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 are, that make up the ETF. Well, somebody should be making sure the ETF and those companies are appropriately priced according to each other. Their options should be priced appro- appropriately according to each other. And, uh, you know, try to find mispricings there. I'm all about finding mispricings. You know, I mean, that's, that's something that computers, uh, that automated trading will be great for. Right. And so I like to close. I have one last uh, kind of question. I'm see if you have, I know you had to go at four. Can, do you have time for one more question? Sure. Shoot. Okay. So uh, we talked about this just very briefly offline, and, uh, but I'll, I'll just bring it up here one, uh, real quick, is the idea of using machine learning uh, yeah. or data mining for this. And you said you had some background in it from your previous job. I mean, for the master's in electrical engineering and computer science, I'm sure you're somewhat, you would have been somewhat familiar with it anyway. But um, had you ever played around with it or had any interest in play, thinking that there might be some possibility of, of applying something like neural nets or Bayesian classifiers or something to uh, intraday trading? Well, it's kind of the holy grail um, uh, because every, everybody wants to, to build uh, a machine that's capable of learning from the markets and being able to trade on its own. Um, and, and we have good reason to, to think that's possible. There are some funds out there that, that as far as we can uh, best guess, um, is doing exactly that. Uh, we talked about uh, 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 Paul Simons. I'm sorry, Jim Simons. Um, With Jim Simons. Uh, and- yeah. Uh, Renaissance. Renaissance, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we think he's probably doing something with, uh, with that Bayesian uh, pattern recognition. Um, but I, I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm not completely convinced that, um, uh, that watching the markets will, will – because that's what we're saying, right? If we're saying we're going to do machine learning, we're talking about feeding it so, so much data that it'll see some embedded pattern and be able to trade on that basis um, in and of itself. I'm not convinced that, that there is enough historical data in the history of the world that we could train a program to be so effective. Um, I think the markets are always changing, and I think the – Distribution of of uh, price movements are is very uh, complicated. It's definitely non normal. It's got the fat tail going on exactly as you said earlier. Um, right. And, and and I just I I think it's it's kind of a pipe dream. And worst of all, um, if you turn all of your trading over to a machine, um, you're you're exposing yourself to potentially major losses if and when. The markets change. If the patterns change, the machine's not going to know that, right? There's no way cool. of – yep. Well, speaking of that, the markets change, I mean, how often do you have to, say, re-optimize your parameters? Because, I mean, I imagine you're not using the same parameters you were a year and a half ago, right? I mean, they have – the markets adjust, and you have to adjust with them. I, I, I tweak the parameters, but I would say that the, the overall effect on P&L is, is not that huge. I think the advantage that I am – that my program is exposing is a little bit more fundamental. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's why I only tr- trade, you know, 12 times per day instead of, you know, a thousand times a day. 
um, uh, because I'm not that dependent on on it. All, all, all I need is sort of that fail safe, right? If if and when the markets go truly crazy, I I have to be on a discretionary basis able to come in there and, and say, okay, no more tomorrow. But I I'm I'm just kind of I don't know. I I, I just I, I I have a hard time. You know what? I'll put it this way, okay? Um, speaking of pitfalls, in the beginning, in the first year of my live trading, I treated my program like a black box. I was afraid to touch it because things worked, and I didn't really know why. <laughs> right. Right? I mean, I knew what it was doing, but all the same, I wasn't fully – I didn't feel comfortable um, trying to overrule it um, or doing anything else. It was just kind of like, you know, I have to – chant the proper incantations and press the buttons in the right order and then it'll make me money. Um, and, and I think if you have a purely machine learning based approach, that's what it's going to end up turning into. You're, you're going to have essentially technicians and they're not, and they're going to be afraid to overrule the black box, right? Because there is this artificial brain that says, let's go long here. And um, you know, who has the authority to, to, to go in there and override it. Now that I've been training my, my, approached live for, you know, for, for two plus years, almost three years now, um, I know how to tweak things. I don't overrule the, the, the program, but I know how to adjust it. It's much more of a live, um, live product for me now. Um, and I think, I think that's not something you're only going to get if you're, um, if you're, if you're constantly involved in adjusting it. Right, right. Well, Justin, I think this is probably a good place to stop. I mean, I could probably go on for another two hours, but uh, we're going to have to end at some point, I guess. And, uh, John, I don't want to take advantage of your time. I really appreciate you uh, being so open and being willing to come on the show and, and really tell us the story and, very, and very tell, us, tell us how it works. Because uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of, um, I don't know, myths about it. And it's interesting to actually talk to somebody who's doing it and who's like, succeeding at it, which you clearly are. So. And, 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 you know, um, if, if I could, just one closing comment. Sure. Um, you know, when you take a look at what's going on in, in the internet world and what enabled us to get to the point where we are now, um, you really have to, to trace it back. I think, you know, past jobs. I know there's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, tears being, being cried over jobs, and I think he's done an, an amazing job. But if you, if, you, if you talk about what's enabled this, you have to take a look at development tools. You know, I mean, coming from a programmer's point of view, you're talking about uh, GCC, GDB. You know, if it wasn't for GNU putting free tools in, in the hands of just about every programmer, I mean, everything in the 90s, it just think about all the free tools that we have to work with. Now, we're free, we're extremely inexpensive. You know, um, sure. Apache, right? MySQL. I mean, can we do what we're doing now without those things? Of course not. Um, I, and then... So once that foundation was set, you had this explosion of creativity, right? I think we're kind of finally reaching that phase in the, in the automated trading world as well. NinjaTrader is not quite free, but it's not expensive. Um, data feeds are not expensive. Um, I think that now that the dev tools are, are there, I expect more people to kind of go down this path, and I expect there to be real explosion in creativity. Do you want there to be more people or, or is oh, that I, I am totally in favor of more people being involved. I mean, yes, I, I, I comprehend that that will hurt my long-term returns, but I mean, you know, I, I'm, 
an entrepreneur technologist first and foremost. So I enjoy seeing things go forward. Um, and, uh, and I'm excited. Uh, and also, you know, on a personal level, I think it just means that there'll be more toolkits that I can use. So I'm excited about that too. <laughs> right. Which is the same case in, uh, in the technology world in general, right? Where people write yeah. building code, the more free stuff gets shared, the more, well, the cooler stuff. I mean, stuff 20 gets. years ago, you know, I mean, you had to pay a lot of money for a C compiler, right? I mean, just buying a C compiler from Borland or Microsoft, um, or Apple, I mean, you, you had to pay big dollars and, and, you know, kids in, in high school and college, uh, it wasn't a, a trivial thing. And then 10 years later, Java is free. Ruby over Rails is free, right? I mean, all, all these things are now free, and, and, uh, and that's, that's what has really changed um, um, our industry for the better. Oh, well, I have to say, this has been a really, really interesting interview. Um, thanks great. so much. Yeah, for I really appreciate it, John. Thanks so much. It's been Hi, great. All right, bye. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. Yeah.